My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Robin Pitawanaquat and Andrew Lowen. In the last year, the ubiquity and persistence of systemic racism and racist violence organized into people's lives across North America via policing, courts, and prisons has become more visible in the mainstream. Of course, to those communities that bear the brunt of it, it isn't news, just the latest moment in a centuries-long reality on this continent. And a sharp division in understandings of police and policing persists, with a strong correlation between whiteness and a refusal to acknowledge this brutal history and present-day reality. But it is precisely because of organizing among those directly affected that this refusal is now showing cracks. It is the organizing in African-American communities in major urban centers in the United States that has been most visible, but those are far from the only places that it is happening. There's a long history of grassroots efforts in Regina, Saskatchewan, particularly among indigenous people who live there, to end police violence and impunity. The latest group to take up this work in Regina is called Voices for Justice and Police Accountability. It came together in January of this year after a series of high-profile incidents. It's a broad-based group that is working hard on a number of fronts, holding public meetings and events, supporting in various ways individuals who have experienced police violence and misconduct, pursuing legal reforms that would strengthen oversight and accountability mechanisms, and working towards a long-term vision of building strong communities where police are less present and less relevant. Robin Pitawanaquat is a business owner, and Andrew Lowen is the editor of Briar Patch magazine, and both are centrally involved in the community organizing that has resulted in Voices for Justice and Police Accountability. They talk with me about policing in Regina, about the group, and about its multiple approaches to working for change. We spoke by Skype to phone from Regina. My name is Robin Pitawanaquat. I am 37 years old. I'm a business owner in Regina. I have a family and I am an Aboriginal person. My name is Andrew Lowen. I'm a community organizer and activist here in Regina. I'm also the current editor of Briar Patch Magazine. Our group, Voices for Justice and Police Accountability, got rolling in January after several high-profile incidents of problems with the police that galvanized a community that has long been organizing and long had issues with the police. We've been meeting for six months and working on a number of initiatives together. I was raised in an activist family. My mother was a human rights activist, so it was always something that I was aware of racial tensions in the city. I've lived here since I was eight months old, but I had thought that they'd gotten better. The thing for me is that as I got older, I became visibly less Aboriginal. So I have a fair skin advantage and I've benefited from that here. However, my partner is very visibly Aboriginal and the more time I spend with him out in public in Regina, the more I realize that he is subject to racial profiling that other people are not. 
when Simon Moccasin was racially profiled in December and subsequently physically roughed up, he was a symbol of the members of my family who can't hide their brownness in a city that doesn't want them to be brown. And so after a little while of not really knowing what path to take to support those family members, my partner and our three children, a friend of mine invited me into this group, which had already met once or twice. And in coming into the group and seeing that there were a lot of people feeling the same feelings that I was feeling, I felt that it was the right place for me to get involved. I've been an activist and community organizer in a really concerted way for about a decade. My experience in racialized and indigenous and low-income communities really began when I was living in Vancouver about six, seven years ago, doing solidarity work and activism around the downtown east side and the kind of police repression that exists there. There was, you know, real touchstone moments for me. There was an Indigenous man, a carver actually, who had a spot camped out a couple blocks from my house in Commercial Drive in Vancouver. I got to know him. I'd talk to him all the time when I walked down the street. His name was Dance. And one day I was walking down the street and the police were there with a dump truck and they were throwing all his belongings into a dump truck, everything he owned. And leading up to the Olympics, we saw street sweeps of the downtown east side where the police moved through the neighborhood and dispossessed the most dispossessed people in the city, took away the belongings and bedding and stuff of homeless people, primarily indigenous, as a sort of social cleansing mechanism before the Olympics. So that period, I think, really heightened my awareness of what policing means in cities and how it affects different people. And following Idle No More and some other experiences, I think, you know, policing is one of the ways that Canadian colonialism really is felt in the everyday lives of people in Canada, in our cities. So getting involved in in community organizing where people's voices can be heard and people can get together and make decisions to empower themselves and to address the situation was just work that's well worth doing to me. I've only been in Regina for about two and a half years. There's a number of people in the city, particularly one group, Saskatchewan Coalition Against Racism, also the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry, and several key Indigenous activists who have been engaging with the police force here for decades on these issues. And like a lot of community organizing and activism, there's punctuated periods or waves where there's a lot more activity, and then sometimes things die down for a while, often because people are burnt out or because they're too busy dealing with, you know, economic or family circumstances. But Regina is, in my experience, a quite divided city, like a lot of prairie cities. There's one neighborhood that's north of the tracks called North Central, which Native folks just call the hood a lot of the time, which is where there's the most concentrated population of Indigenous folks. And the kind of policing that happens there, as well as when First Nations people, people of color, are just walking through the city, is very different than the policing that is experienced by, you know, a white guy like me. I've never been stopped by the police. I've never been ID'd. I've never been hassled personally in any way, and yet so many of my Native friends in this city have been ID'd, hassled, and worse, in the case of my friend Simon, who was on his way home and then on his way to actually the uh, Briar Patch Magazine Christmas party last December, and was stopped three times by police before eventually being thrown up against a wall and thrown into the back of a police car. 
ostensibly because he was a suspect in a uh, minor burglary of a TV set. But within a couple hours of having detained him, they determined, well, guess this isn't our guy. And they just sent him on his way. When he went to make a formal complaint, he was discouraged from doing so. And when he finally did make a formal complaint, it hasn't led anywhere. And this has been about seven months and nothing has come of it. So it's not just the experiences people have, it's the fact that the accountability mechanisms are a joke here. This Public Complaints Commission has no credibility in this city among anybody I talk to. The incident with Simon was the one that was closest to me because I knew Simon. He's on the Briar Patch board. He was on the way to our party. There were several other incidents. There was a case involving Lisa Dussiehorn's child, which is quite complicated, but involved her being picked up late at night without coat or shoes by the police and being very terrified by her experience with the police and there being a lot of uncertainty about why she was driven around in the cruiser for so long when she was very near her home when they picked her up. So that was another incident that led to a protest outside the police station. Much later in the winter, video was released of a police officer kicking a homeless man named Eddie Stonechild outside a detox center. This constable named Robert Power had kicked this man in the stomach or chest, sending him backwards to break his head open on cement outside the detox center. This officer had lied about what happened three times on the record and yet was still reinstated to the police force and is on the police force now. So those are a few other incidents in the background. The way things, I guess, initially happened is that several of us decided to call an open meeting and made flyers, put it out on Facebook as an open invitation for community members to get together, talk about their experiences with the police and think about some things we could do. We had it in the North Central neighborhood. Initially, we thought, you know, maybe 15, 20 people will show up. But before long, there was over 100 people on the Facebook page saying they were going to attend the meeting. So we had to arrange a different space than the one we'd originally found. And there was over 70 people at that first meeting. That would be huge in any city. But in a city like Regina, where active activity is not at a mass level generally, it was an overwhelming response. There was a lot of people who shared their experiences very passionately. A lot of the key figures in our group, several of the key people, are both mothers and sisters of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And so their voices have always been very prominent in discussions and sharing within our group. And from that first meeting, it didn't take very long before the group defined working groups or subcommittees that were working on different projects, whether peer support and emotional support for people with bad experiences with the police, a legal-oriented team who were putting together information packets and investigating accountability mechanisms, more community mutual aid projects. So there was a number of different initiatives that spun out from the larger group and have continued over the last six months. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about what the working groups do. Maybe start out by telling me a bit more about the peer support group. We wanted to allow for multiple avenues for people to express what had happened to them with police in the city. Not everyone wants to make a formal complaint. And even once you've done a formal complaint, that doesn't necessarily resolve all the issues that you have. So we wanted to have a space where people could come together and feel safe knowing that they're not alone, that there are other people that have experienced similar things, and that we would be there to support each other through all the emotion that comes up through that. 
it meets on a regular basis. I believe it's bi-weekly. And people just get together and they talk and support each other. Tell me more about the legal-oriented working group. One initial initiative was to put together a Know Your Rights card that could fit in people's wallets. So we met to compile resources from other pamphlets and other legal aid groups and try and distill that onto a card. There was also a larger project, larger vision about like what are the accountability mechanisms. The Regina Police Service have no civilian review board which most police departments, as far as I know, in North America do. And, of course, there's varying degrees of effectiveness of those. But to have no citizen review board that is entirely separate from both the RPS and the Ministry of Justice is a key initiative, a key reform, but one that has been tried to put in place by SCAR and the Anti-Poverty Ministry in years past. So it's nothing new, but it still hasn't happened. And so that effort, I think, is ramping up now again. It's a much longer-term, legalistic kind of process. And also members of that group have helped people advance formal complaints, have put people in touch with legal aid, and helped set individuals up with forms of legal counsel and legal advice so that people are empowered to move forward in that way if they want to. And you mentioned a working group that does more community-focused mutual aid. Tell me more about that. Uh, we don't want to say too much about this group, I think, because it's not a out-in-the-public sort of group, but there's been some activity to provide, especially in the cold winter months, food and clothing and transportation for people, particularly in the North Central neighborhood, as well as downtown and other neighborhoods. Tell me about some of the public events that the group has organized. Our general meetings are open to the public. Anyone can mm-hmm. join our group. So I guess every meeting has been public except for the planning ones for our recent June 20th event. But the event on June 20th, I think Andrew can speak to that a little bit better as I was spending most of my time running after my children. Sure. And so earlier also in the year, March 15th is International Day of Police Brutality. And so the Saskatchewan Coalition Against Racism and members of our group and other community members and activists organized Regina's first participation in the International Day Against Police Brutality, which was a march from City Hall to the main police station. The police had quite a I don't know what the term is. They, they, they were very unsettled by the fact that people might have this march. And so in informal correspondence with a few people in our group, they, you know, expressed concern that this would turn into Montreal and, you know, there would be violence in their terms. So to have these public displays, this public momentum that is critical of the police, that is not expressing a public fear, but quite the opposite, saying, actually, we're going to walk down the street. We've got signs. And we presented a list of eight concerns that we came together with in our meetings, in our groups. So eight concerns that people had with the Regina Police Service and delivered those on March 15th. There was a lot of media there. So that was sort of the first media event, I guess. Our meetings are open to the public, but not to the media and not to members of the Regina Police Service. And then we had a town hall gathering, a big public forum on June 20th after the Pride Parade here. We had originally been in discussion with the police about whether they would participate in that in some formal way, like to sit on a panel with members of our group or other people on panels. 
they opted not to participate. We couldn't agree to a format that was acceptable to both them and us, so they didn't participate. But our event featured an open mic time for anyone in the community to come up to the mic and just spend a couple minutes sharing their experiences or thoughts on dealings with the police in Regina and the history of police involvement, particularly with Indigenous communities, but not solely. And we had a few panelists and speakers. Kevin Daniels, a longtime activist, Indigenous activist in town, spoke. Michelle Stewart, who teaches in Justice Studies and is one of the original facilitators of our group, spoke, and she does a lot of research on the police. And Peter Gilmer from the Anti-Poverty Ministry spoke. So we had a number of speakers to address the history of the accountability mechanisms and talk more technically about what's going on. And we had a big meal with caribou stew and a bunch of soup and two dozen loaves of bannock. So we had a big feast after it all. How have the police been responding to the organizing that you've been doing? And what kinds of communications have you had with them? There was ongoing communication with one of the members of our group in an informal way since the beginning of the group. But then the group wasn't ready to do anything formally with the Regina Police Service at that time. Once we had made the decision that we wanted to involve them in the June 20th event, we extended an invitation. And then we began discussions with them on what could work for everyone involved. Unfortunately, we didn't get around to a format that works for everyone for the June 20th event, but we are hoping that in the future there will be a format that works for everyone. I guess another thing to say is in response to our list of concerns, the police had wanted to meet with just a small representative or select members of our group in private. And participants in our group and in our meetings were not interested in having just a few people try and suss out these issues. And that was one of the reasons why we began planning this public forum, is that people wanted this kind of discussion and this dialogue completely out in the public not behind closed doors on the third floor of police headquarters, but out in the public and more on the terms of the community. Also in relation to those concerns, the chief of police, Troy Hagan, released an open letter that ran to 5,000 words. And a lot of people in our group found it a pretty disappointing document. One of the first points that that open letter made was that the Regina Police Service does not practice racial profiling. That doesn't jive with the daily experience of a lot of people in this city. So that letter was not really seen as a particularly helpful measure in things, I think, by a lot of people. And what are some of the specific demands and concerns that the group has raised? The main concern for me was the oversight group. But the letter that was delivered on March 15th outlined the main points that the group came up with. There was a number of concerns just about daily police practices, profiling of people of color and low-income people, bad dealings or unhelpful and sensitive dealings with people with mental health issues, a sense of a lack of cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness of the original cultures of Treaty 4 territory where we live, a concern about how police deal with sex workers, concern about excessive use of force, concern about sexist behavior by police. The list of concerns was very concrete, and the mechanisms to address those vary, I guess, from different kinds of training and education to actual accountability, which is obviously a key thing. There's also members of the group who 
I mean, it's quite a diverse group with different voices. And there are also members of the group who want to make the police less relevant in communities. So to form networks and carry out initiatives that reduce police presence in neighborhoods and provide forms of care and aid and support for people so that the police don't need to get involved to the extent that they insert themselves in people's lives. What would that look like? What could it look like to make the police less relevant in communities? In the group Helping Each Other, which is one of our little branches, we offer rides to people who might be intoxicated rather than them being picked up by the police and taken to the drunk tank. That would be one example. There's been different discussions about having a community safe house. We have not put that together. But there's different kinds of, you know, neighborhood care, neighborhood security. All these words seem like the wrong words because they have this authoritarian or policing valence to them. But there's models rooted in things that certainly the Black Panthers had done and to some degree the American Indian movement, which are historical examples of this. We haven't really developed, I think, a lot of capacity in that regard but it's certainly something that's on some people's radar and something that some people who are at our meetings talk about and reference. Tell me about the kinds of public responses you've received and the kinds of conversations you've had with people about the organizing that you've been doing. A lot of the comments that I've had directed at me, they're negative comments that people are making the assumption that we're anti-police without really having any idea about who we are. And they make assumptions, too, that we have no interest in having a dialogue with the police, that we're just out to make complaints and be loud. But we really do want to make a safer community for everyone. At this point, my children know that they cannot trust the police have their best interests in mind when we are stopped for any reason. And so I would like that to change very much. And I want other people in the community to realize that that is the direction. This work we've been doing together for the last six months has been really fascinating to me in relation to other organizing experiences I have. I tend to think about the left, but increasingly I don't know if that's a helpful thing to do, particularly in terms of Indigenous communities who don't identify with the left. It's not their tradition. They have their own traditions to go back hundreds of years, thousands of years. But compared to other community organizing I've done, this group is actual community organizing in terms of bringing diverse groups of people together and empowering each other's voices, caring for each other, and trying to build up community power and community infrastructure. And that has a separate focus than public engagement and public media. And it's been interesting to me that a lot of members, and when I say member, I don't mean formally, I just mean participants in our group, are not necessarily that interested in media or broad public outreach. And particularly, I find that for a lot of Indigenous people, they're tired of trying to do public outreach and educate the Canadian public and other people in the city. And to some degree, I think that's more the responsibility of settler people, of often white people, to educate other white people about these things. It's not the responsibility of people who experience racialized and structural oppression to then also rise up and do a bunch of, you know, media interviews and educate the public. So I think there's different investments in public media and public outreach within our group. And for some people, it's actually not a big priority. 
in terms of discussion. I think they definitely do happen on social media. People sharing things on Facebook and discussion threads resulting from them. Definitely even among like my family members. My brother works in a fire department in Alberta, so he's gotten to know police because he's in the fire department and there was a lot of attention to what was happening in the States. And so, you know, I had long conversations with people about the police. And unfortunately, things tend to get pretty simplistic for a lot of people where you get the bad apple versus all cops are bastards sort of dichotomy and an actual structural engagement with the police as a mechanism for enforcing racial and class lines. It's harder to get conversations to that place, but I think with time and with work, conversations can get to that place. What's coming up for the group in the next six months, say? We're hoping to do another town hall meeting within the next six months and to continue our invitation to the wider community. There are many voices that we would love to hear, and the more people know about us, hopefully the more diverse the stories and the people that join us. Yeah, I mean, we want to continue doing the work that's happening in terms of peer support, in terms of new voices coming into the fold and expressing their experiences and helping to develop strategy. We don't have a leadership structure. It's a sort of informal consensus process, although we do have people who facilitate meetings and keep things happening in a timely way, which I think is helpful that people know they can show up at a meeting and it's actually going to end on time and that there's a little bit of structure to it. And so, yeah, we want to continue doing the work that we're already doing, put on another public event, like Robin said, and the more legal, structural-oriented group thinking about accountability is, I think, going to continue to ramp up in the coming months. We did a debriefing of the town hall gathering just last night. So the core organizers, 15 to 20 people, met to discuss the event. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was that a number of people said they were really encouraged that there had been some settler activists, some white people who had shown consistency in standing alongside the people who actually experience this kind of policing, not just at one event and not just on Facebook, but actually week after week, month after month, working together with Native people in the city. And I think... For everybody involved, that's been a really fruitful and, at least for me, a really exciting thing to be a part of. And I think that kind of consistency and persistence is something that would be great to see happening in every city and every town in Canada. That is something that has been really inviting about the group. My partner and I, generally, we don't get involved in community activism because there's often a lot of people who are all talk and no support, no real support. So that has been very different about this group. You have been listening to my interview with Robin Pitawanaquat and Andrew Lowen about the work of Voices for Justice and Police Accountability in Regina, Saskatchewan. To learn more about their work, search for Voices for Justice and Police Accountability on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.